Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, welcome to We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. And I am excited to have a real difference maker and a wonderful storyteller on today. Kim Barthel is an award-winning occupational therapist, multidisciplinary teacher, and best-selling author who is active in supporting people in many cultures, literally all over the world, a pioneer in reinforcing the importance of relationships, the hot topics. She wakes up thinking about understanding complex behavior, neurobiology, trauma-informed practice, censoring, processing, movement, attachment theory, mental health, and anything that will help support people in being their best selves. Kim, it's so good to have you on the show. Mm, Michael, I am humbled and honored to spend time with you this morning. Ah, lovely. Well, let's start out telling people what is an occupational therapist or what you call a neurodevelopmental therapist? That's a great place to start. An OT is what we say affectionately. Mm -hmm. An occupational therapist is a very exciting and unique profession that evolved uh, during wartime and came into being because veterans were returning from conflict and war with amputations, with significant injuries, with mental health related issues. And nurses at the time found purposeful activity, meaningful activity as the onset of rehabilitation, as a, an, a point of entry into purpose, connecting people back to their to their best self, to their purpose, mm. to re-engage in life. So the, the profession was born from the perspective, the holistic perspective of helping people connect into life, perform the daily living activities that they need to do in order to be human and to rehabilitate anything that they've lost throughout their lifespan. And OTs can work from, we say, cradle to grave, which is a terrible way to say it, from birth until you stop breathing as a way of the spiritual, the mental, emotional, and physical well-being of the person. Mm. And that's, that's our profession. What really interested me about your profession is you're so eclectic. I said all the things that I had heard about you, but that isn't even part of it. You kind of like me having this show. It's my education. I can try on all kinds of different things and see how they work. So this fascination of the field, it, it seems to have no bounds. How did it grow with you? I, I think of OT as a little more limited in scope than the huge, vast areas that you cover. Well, I, I am a little bit 
I don't know what the right word is, out there, unusual, in my uh, pioneering entrepreneurial spirit. But I, I fell in love with this profession when I was nine, which is kind of strange in and of itself, to be a, a child who already knows what they want to do. And what my exposure to it was, was children with special needs. And there was an occupation, I'm from Winnipeg in central Canada, and there was an occupational therapist that worked at this institution for children with, uh, who were at the time called mentally handicapped. And I fell in love with what I could see as change in the wellness of these children. And so the thing about OT is you have to study the whole person. And so within the scope of practice, what is so special about it is the diversity in which you can take it. And we, you know, the beginning of our training is with medical students. So you spend years in the anatomy lab, studying the brain, studying physiology, studying anatomy. Many OTs work with people who've had injuries to their hand. You got to know all the intricacies of every detail. And, and so the possibilities are very vast. But what always attracted me to OT was mental health. Mm. That, that was it for me. The suffering of the human spirit uh, caught me early on in my training. And that's where I, the invisibility of mental health challenges and trauma and all of the, the spiritual wounds that people have. That, that's what always drew me in to uh, the direction that I wanted to go. Let's talk about trauma a little bit. You talked about working with vets. That's a particular kind of trauma of someone who's a, a veteran and during the Vietnam era, a lot of trauma there as someone who also experienced early developmental trauma and the whole area of the impact of attachment or lack of attachment as a child. And then there's the collective and perhaps ancestral mm. trauma that we live inside of right now, the pandemic, but of course, uh, genocide of the native people, slavery, all of these things are in, it's like a, we live in a sea of trauma. Yes. And for the most part, we're oblivious to it. Yes. I also like to say we live in a sea of resilience. Mm -hmm. That not only do we have within our DNA, within our being, this sensitivity, the vulnerability to disturbances in our spirit, in our brain, in our heart, but we also have an incredible human capacity for resilience and survival. And for a long time as a student, probably the last 20 years, studying developmental trauma, my focus has been what happens to the developing brain under the conditions of childhood maltreatment, adversity, significant trauma. And that has been a, ah, a tremendous focus of my wake, waking and probably sleeping time as well. 
And in the last, I don't know, maybe five years, given the extensiveness of human suffering that I have experienced and witnessed in my career around the world, I've also seen the beauty of what people do in transformation of themselves in the space of adversity. And that's what I you know, believe in is this conscious evolution of the human spirit. And you know, that fits in with this idea that yes, we are living in never ending stress, challenge, trauma, but there's a mystery in there of the opposite force at work as well. You know, the thing that strikes me about that too is we, for the most part in the West, particularly, are cut off from our ancestors, any relationship mm -hmm. to the hundreds of thousands of years of evolution that has given us the resilience you're talking about has, you know, our ancestors went through plagues and, and famines and wars and hangings and burning at the stake, all of these things. And yet we're here. So obviously life wants to continue, wants to live, but there is this lack of connection to yeah. our ancestors and also the other side of it, besides the resiliency, is ancestral traumas. So talk about that and how we can relate to our ancestors in a way that's actually healing. Mm. What a beautiful question. Whenever I think about transgenerational transmission of trauma or intergenerational transmission of trauma, or as Thomas would say, collective trauma, it always takes me to the biology of that question and how our epigenetics, which is the little satellite dishes that sit on top of our DNA that scopes the environment that we live in is responsive to the experiences that we have in our lives. And some parts of our DNA are set in stone, thank goodness. My nose is where it's supposed to be on my face because my, my DNA directed where those cells should go. But some of our cells are constantly changing, altering, adapting to the ever uh, vulnerable conditions that we live in. And so our ancestry lives in us. You know, we often think about it being history behind us or beside us or somewhere else, but it's in here, inside, in each and every cell of me that I bring forth into how I think, how I respond. And in some ways that knowledge has given me a state of grace because, you know, in my, in my inclination to want to go into blaming myself for our response, for example, or going into some inner dialogue of Kim, you know, you, you know better than this. 
or you have more knowledge than how you are behaving or thinking. I remember that my ancestry is in here and is contributing to that. And it softens for me and gives me the bigger picture of how we are shaped. But in a pragmatic way, in response to your question, curiosity helps. Being curious about who was my family? Where did they come from? What happened in the history of a culture? Are, uh, I happen to live with my husband, who is a historian. And I get that information whether I want it or not. You know, what, what was the circumstances at different times? And that information that we read, listen to, hear, it resonates or doesn't. When you hear a story and, or you're with a person, you're in a relationship, story is a relationship, it vibrates with you. And so when you hear something, it's your empathy that's resonating, but sometimes we feel it in our whole body like a wave. And that says, oh my gosh, that information is in my DNA. At least that's what it means to me. Mm. Curiosity is such a container. It's like not knowing, it's surrender, it's mm -hmm. creating awe and wonder and opening to the mystery of it all. It's such a big word that we just kind of throw off sometimes, but it's mm. huge. Talk about the difference between early developmental trauma and say war trauma or even sure. something in later teens those different kinds of traumas and how you actually need to work with them differently and they have different effects on us. Oh, I could talk about that for a whole lifetime. <laughs> so here, here we go. I think, you know, one of the things when we talk about developmental trauma is that it actually begins, well, we just talked about preconception, but it also has its roots in utero. What is happening for mom in her context. Her mind is her context as well. Filters into the physiology of the developing baby and affects that developing baby at a genetic level, but also at a brain development level. And the brain parts that are evolving, especially in utero have a lot to do with sensory processing. That was in my bio there, that word. Mm -hmm. And sensory processing is how I perceive sensations. And that is our primitive development. You know, our cognitive cortical development happens after birth. But this foundation of where am I in space? Who am I in space? Pre-consciousness. This is all unfolding in utero and is highly affected by stress. And so the stress chemistry by, that mom experiences, it shunts and redirects and organizes baby's experience in unique and different ways. And then after birth, relationship is what we call attachment. Now, the word attachment mm, often leads people 
on a journey. And what I want really to emphasize here is the importance of connection, which is different than attachment. So attachment is an adaptive function for survival. How do I come to you, communicate to you that I'm sick, hungry, in stress, in distress? And then how do I leave you while you protect me so I can go and explore the environment? And attachment is about security and well-being and connection is what shapes that. So when a parent can put their mind in the mind of their child, there is this phenomenon in the brain that I call gleaming and beaming that lights up the neural networks in the brain that are responsible for emotional regulation, for attention span, for higher function cognition, these are things that happen when you have somebody that holds you in mind. And so developmental trauma happens when the opposite happens. When there is a caregiver or caregivers who are doing the best they can with what they have. But in spite of that, they are disrupted by their own suffering and cannot hold this child in mind in varying degrees. And this interrupts the development of those neural networks that contribute to emotional regulation, which means taking care of my own emotions, being able to be in relationship with others. All of those networks, they form around those experiences. And the ones that happen, the interruptions that happen before you're two have the greatest impact on us in the legacy of our life pre-language because they don't make sense. There's no meaning to the person of those experiences other than body memories of that legacy of stress, trauma, discomfort, dysregulation, inavailability that doesn't have any understanding. Whew, that was a long answer to that first part of your question. <laughs> that was a great answer. I only brought up 20 more questions though. This whole area of, well, first of all, the pre-verbal. Hmm. What I find in my work with mostly people who adults are older, yes. <laughs> senior adults sometimes, is that we're highly disembodied. Oh, yeah. That amazingly so. Now, I studied with Gabrielle Roth for 40 years. Yes. It yes. always just amazes me that people are so disembodied. In addition, we're so in touch. I like to distinguish feelings from emotions. For me, my distinction of it is that feelings are in the mind and emotions are in the body, not that they don't reciprocate. But when we're so disembodied and so 
unable to actually feel our emotions other than as a mental construct, how do we connect in a way, and I think connection is the word, as you said earlier, in a way that people feel safe enough to feel unsafe to feel what they're actually feeling in their body and feel the emotions they're trying to feel. Beautifully said. And that brings me back to the sensory systems, which is, you know, what I, why I started there is that that disembodiment that you're talking about can be altered in its actual development. You know, maybe it didn't actually develop well in the first place, or I dissociated so often that I start to lose that thread of sensory awareness within myself that shunts the energy of my being up into the mind and takes me away from my body. And in our work, we call it a combination of interoception with exteroception and interoception being, what do I feel on the inside of me? And exteroception meaning, where am I in space? Are my joints bent? Are my muscles contracting? Is someone touching me? What do I see? What do I hear in the environment? And, you know, you hear uh, psychotherapists like Babette Rothschild talk about this. But for me as an OT, this came from my work from Dr. Jean Ayers, who developed the theory sensory integration for working with children with learning disabilities way back in the 70s and 80s when I was a student. And how there's that parallel understanding of I need to experience movement. Gabrielle Roth has it all going on there. I need to experience touch. I need to experience my body as a safe place before I will experience my emotions in my body as a safe place. Mm-hmm. And this is why, you know, even though I, I love uh, psychodyma- psychodynamic, psychotherapeutic process, it, it cannot happen in a contain awareness up here in your head does not shift reactionary trauma, especially pre-conscious nonverbal experiences, because there's no connection between the thought and what's happening inside the body. And so it's finding ways for me, that's from children to adults to find joy and safety in the sensory systems that allows us to step our toe in there exactly as you said, to tolerate our feelings Mm -hmm. with a little bit more ease and comfort. Yeah. Yeah. I call it leaning into. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go ahead. You were going to say say, there's one more thing about that. Mm -hmm. None of that can be done alone. And that's the co-regulation of relationship, that the relational, I was with a client this morning who was in the middle of our conversation, had an anxiety attack. 
and that holding space here, just on the phone. Just sit with me here. Just listen to my voice. I'm holding your hand right now. That feeling of not being alone is one of the pathways in to the interoceptive system to contribute to that safety in the body. For me, it's such an important thing you're bringing up. So there's working with people and really being with them, whether it's on the phone or Zoom or in person, being able to really feel what they're feeling and, and really listen yeah. with your whole body. What I've found is in doing groups now, the collective work of co-regulation mm. 10 times faster. It's really uh, quite amazing. I mean, you know, you know, I've been working with Thomas for three or four years now, studying with him. And I'm, I just love the groups that we're doing right now and the ability. And yet everybody in there, it takes a really safe container. Mm -hmm. We do six month groups. So, and most of them go on to the next one. Talk about mm. individual and collective coherence building and co-regulation. Gorgeous words. Mm. Well, just like we talk about collective trauma, there's collective healing. And I love the word coherence because, well, when you think about belonging, belonging in a group, unity, equanimity, resonance, those words that um, they have a magnificent impact on a structure in the brain we call the right orbital frontal cortex. And when that, thank you to Alan Shore for teaching me that information, when that structure is enlivened, our entire system feels at ease. And, you know, there's power in, well, one person gets me, but think of the power when there's 50 people that get me or 200 people that get me, that I'm in this collective experience. And my friend and colleague, Theo Fleury, would completely agree here that, you know, when he started sharing his story of his sexual abuse as a teenage young man hockey player prior to his career in the National Hockey League, that his game changer was feeling like he was not alone. And the greater degree of me too the greater the impact of ease that I am not separate from others. And, and I know that that sounds like words, but neurobiologically, what that does is increase our oxytocin. And oxytocin is like a antidote to cortisol. So that, that collective group mindedness when there's a shared vision, a shared resonance, it, to me, would give you magnificent euphoric experiences of oxytocin. Beyond the one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> yeah, the love potion. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so earlier, you mentioned dissociation. I'm not sure everybody 
actually gets what that means. So maybe you could talk about that. And one of the ways that goes along with that, that I love how Thomas calls trauma frozen past. Yes. And I love that image of it because it's not that something's broken or needs to be fixed. It's that there's an intelligence in our nervous system that did protect us when we did this dissociation and is still protecting us and that there's nothing wrong and nothing that needs to be fixed. So maybe talk mm -hmm. about that process of dissociation and integration together. Oh, love it. Well, sometimes I think I would like to write a book called The Thousand Faces of Dissociation hmm. because what it is, is it's a separateness. It's a state of disconnection. We talked about connection, connection to the self, and a dissociated state is a disconnection from myself because of overwhelm or fear or terror. And our, our nervous system is innately brilliant because within it, it has mechanisms to allow us survival, fight and flight and freeze. And these chemical responses, uh, if you are a zebra on the savanna, I'm quoting Dr. Robert Sapolsky here, zebras on the savanna after they are chased by a lion, they don't lie down on the savanna and have post-traumatic stress disorder, right? They shake it off. They use the body to reconnect to the body. Because what you see uh, for, you see this movement into flight for the zebra, and then briefly you see a moment of tetany and freeze and the shake moves them back down through flight, right back into, ah, oh, I can go back to eating my grass now. And the challenge for humans is we have these same responses to things that happen in our own mind. Worrying about, you know, my taxes and, well, right now we have a lot of things to worry about. And those fight-flight responses, they accumulate. They stack up. And I call it, uh, for me, the analogy I love the best is the window of tolerance. Mm -hmm. The bandwidth that I can hang on to, to stay connected to myself. When I get outside of that window of tolerance, which doesn't have to be a single event, can be a stack deck, or it can be a single event. Then, like a, for me, I'm thinking about, uh, I had a near drowning in cold water. And what I remember is the freeze. Just the frozen response, where you don't know what to do. And you're, it's almost like a shock feeling. And if that happens repeatedly, this is what we call dissociation. And so we disconnect in those moments. 
And in order to heal, I have to come back through the hierarchy to come back to the middle. But why Thomas describes it as being frozen in time is because many of us get stuck in that disconnected space because going through the shake it off chaos is not any fun. It's not a, you know, and some clients, some people, clients are people that I support, but people in general, we all have these experiences. They will do anything to avoid that space in between dissociation and feeling the suffering and the pain. Addiction is a great example. So, you know, it's that space in between being out there and being in here. That is the part where feeling the emotions and feelings, I'm going to put them together, happens. Mm-hmm. Did I answer that question? Yeah, it's in great. In a way that like you... And you always bring up more questions. <laughs> you, you know, you mentioned stress. And one of the things that people often come to me is I'm just, especially with the COVID, I'm so stressed. I just can't deal with this. And it's really interesting because stress is one of those words that really obfuscates rather than reveals anything. It's like saying... I'm sick. You have a cold or stage four cancer. It doesn't really say anything. For me, when I look at stress, it basically says that my current capacity is inadequate to meet the challenges that I'm meeting. Mm. So it means that to me that it's a capacity, it's an interior capacity issue. Mm. So when we're overwhelmed with that, I'm thinking of the window of tolerance and how do we create more capacity Mm. when our window is this and yet what's needed is this right now. And so- Great question. Yeah. It's about tapping back into resilience. Mm -hmm. And so there are a few things that help. I mean, what is really important to be clear about here is this is not like a bank account. You know, I can't just, you know, stack up this bank account and draw from it when I need it under a stressful condition. Although that does help. They're resources. Yeah. My dog is a resource. Exactly. You know, walking in nature. Yeah. Yes. Those are great examples of resources. But what, you know, what happens in this place of restoration for a stress response that is outside the window of tolerance depends on how far outside your window of tolerance you are. Things, for example, proximity with a safe person. Steve Porges calls it neuroception, Mm -hmm. right? Just being in the space with a person who holds space for you who makes you feel present because they are present. That is a tiny shift, sometimes enough of a shift to move that dial in the direction back into the cup 
that's about to spill over. And, and sometimes that requires no, no voice, nothing. And other times it's the nonverbals in that relational connection that help. How that person uses their eyes, what they do with their voice, how they experience their body language that can be that neuroception. The sound of human voice is very important in this. Breath. When, I don't know, when somebody says to me, Kim, take a breath, I just want to hit them. <laughs> because when I am already outside my window of tolerance, I don't want a directive. I want a supportive. And so somebody who just sits there and takes a deep breath <sighs> automatically creates that to happen in the receiver. These are tiny little in the moment things that we do in co-regulation. And the resourcing that you talked about, being in nature, your dog, what you eat, sleep, Sleep is a massive resource. That's when your brain does all its cleaning up. When, you know, the, the nature of the re relationships that you have. But what you do with your mind is a very significant resource manager. And easier to do when you're within the window of tolerance. Yeah. When you're still able to have the awareness, being conscious of how you treat yourself, what you say to yourself, what you think about yourself, having beauty in your life, finding ways to enjoy the aesthetic. These are all bank account fillers, but they are to make that cup hold a little bit more. And co-regulation helps you get back into that cup. You mentioned sleep there and I'll just give a personal example. So I started having difficulties with my memory. You know, I'm 75 and people said, oh, you're just getting older. And I went, no, I'm really, I'm forgetting things that I shouldn't be forgetting. So I had a, a test and, I'm, and I didn't do too well on the memory test. And the doctor said, how much do you sleep at night? And I went, no, oh, four or five hours, but I take a nap every day. And how much time do you spend on the computer? 10 to 12 hours a day. And when you go to bed, what do you do? I read. And do you turn your internet off? Uh, when I remember to. And said, well, you know, <laughs> and she, she talked about sleep hygiene, which yes. I had never heard of before and said, stop taking naps instead of getting up at two or three in the morning, like I often do and start working, you know, and then I usually meditate a few hours too, which supposedly was helpful, but I started setting a time at five o'clock to get up instead of any time I wake up, just go work. And it's been two weeks since I started 
And I'm now up to seven to eight hours a night. Wow. And I can't believe how much better I, I feel. And it just, it snuck up on me because I love my work and I love yes. my students yeah. and I, I love radio and I love doing the things I do. All of those things have a real impact on you. And, and, and of course, eating. I, I have been eating well, so I didn't include that, but yes. diet and, and all of that. So in order to even begin to do trauma work, we need to be rested and we need to take the time to do that. Your, your, just your overall thoughts about that. Well, I think there's a catch-22 to that conversation mm-hmm. because I have lots to say about sleep. First of all, there are two phases of sleep, uh, generally, REM and non-REM, non-REM being deep sleep. And this is where glymphatics happen, which is where the glial cells, which are beside your nerve cells in the brain, do all their cleanup job. It's kind of like a washing machine. When you're sleeping in a deep sleep phase, your neurons retract, they pull back. It's kind of like something triggers them to, I'm gonna use a metaphor, shrink. And the glial cells expand and like a little scrub brush in your dishwasher, they clean all the spaces, which is where the junk lies that contributes to things like Alzheimer's and inflammation in the brain. And so that doesn't happen as effectively at any other time other than in deep sleep. Mm-hmm. And so the sleep hygiene is all of those things you mentioned and those routines, when I go to bed, when I get up, what is the temperature in the room? What is the humidity in the room? Uh, how- Light, light. Yes, uh, the light, exactly. Although, Electronics, as you say. And the problem with trauma is that it stops you from sleeping. High levels of anxiety are a hijacker of sleep. Especially, you know, um, there's a very strong association between trauma in the amygdala, post-traumatic stress trauma, The amygdala being a structure that has a lot to do with this trauma response, it is kindled. It's always on. And that disrupts your your REM sleep. And that's where a lot of your reorganization, your coherence, your meaning-making of life happens. So you've got multiple variables here. Many people, as they start to sort through their trauma, their REM sleep gets better. And as you know, we make sense out of things, you can see a change in the pattern of sleep. So I need to sleep in order to heal, but I need to heal in order to sleep. So yeah. it's this beautiful container of, of uh, interactive forces. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been doing a lot of deep trauma work and I'm not sure that that work hasn't been in some ways because I'm so type A about things in mm-hmm. some ways re-triggered a lot of, because I'm working with a lot of trauma, re-triggered old trauma 
which may have been had something to do with both not sleeping and not particularly wanting to sleep. I mean, I'm with you there, Michael. As a person who eats, sleeps, and breathes this topic and, you know, have my own history of developmental trauma, Mm -hmm. when you're holding space for others all day long, all lifelong, it's impossible not to be activated, I think. Mm -hmm. I think you need to be activated. Right. Right, in order for that resonance to happen. And... I feel I have this new, this new belief. I've been talking about this for a week in this way (laughs) that we are like a split self that when I'm activated and this would resonate with Thomas's I'm frozen in time analogy. When, when you're activated by something, that's your history. That's just shown up, right? That when, and I don't like the word trigger because it triggers people. So I've changed the word to activated. Uh-huh. When you're activated by what someone has said or what they've done or something you watch on TV, your history is right in your hands. And if I'm in my window of tolerance, I, if, if the other part of myself can come in and say to this activated self, this is really hard, isn't it? This feeling is not easy for you and it's okay that helps me broaden over time my tolerance of that activation and what you said earlier is unless i can sit theo Fleury calls it sit in your ship unless i can sit or sit with your ship not in it but with it if i can broaden my tolerance that's when it moves when it breathes rather than stays frozen in time yeah yeah beautifully said it's how we find the edges of the narrative that's living us in a way yes the story that we live from and at the same time i like the idea of titration that and Mm -hmm. stillness how important they are maybe you could address Mm. that a little bit well i'm all about ease i grew up in the era of go big or go home where trauma work was go get it you know i'm a a student of stan groff of holotropic breath work and you know all the release era where we would in my words chase it how do i go get your trauma activate it and release it. And in my personal experience, as a recipient of that work, that, in my experience, kept me frozen in time. And, and, you know, that's even with some of the most skilled facilitators. This is not about, are you a good enough facilitator or not a good enough facilitator? You used the word earlier in the conversation around integration. Integration comes through ease. And so titration, which is a chemistry word, meaning little bits. Right. Right. Let's just do a little bit. It disturbs the system a little bit, but keeps you inside the window of tolerance and allows you to have the awareness 
and expand the coherence. So, uh, you know, that whole idea of um, integration can only happen when you are in a present state. You know, if you're in a fragmented state, that's the opposite of integration. So integration to me is almost the same as somebody asked me recently in an, in an interview, what do you mean by the conscious evolution of the human spirit? And I said, to me, consciousness is the awareness of something that I didn't have awareness of a moment ago. And that that is an ever evolving capacity. It doesn't suggest this massive transformation of my personality, which is what I think people often are looking for in their understanding of transformation. To me, transformation is a change in your activation on a spectrum so that you're more comfortable in your own skin, in the presence of an activator. Yeah, beautifully said. You know, I teach meditation and one of the things that I've noticed is that people always want to get there. Yes. Not willing to deal with here. Here. And it's such a, a interesting phenomenon when you work with people to develop the capacity to generate and cultivate stillness that the amount of expectations that then start to color it like, well, I was doing really good in the beginning and I was really calm as if that were actually the outcome that was expected. I tell people it's not about getting calm, that when you create more capacity by being able to sit with and lean into, I call it the edges, then you're going to make space for more stuff to come up Absolutely. So the, the thing is not to get somewhere where you're not, but if you want change is to be where you are, but that's so hard for people to grasp. Well, it comes back to what we were saying earlier about we'll do anything to avoid suffering. Yeah. You know, I think that's part of our, our structure as well. Yeah. Anything that makes us feel that our survival is at risk, which those feelings feel that way. I know that for myself, for example, if I have a, I don't know, a physical symptom, then the anxiety will come next. And then that will make the symptom worse. And then the anxiety will come again, right? It's that whole, whereas the symptom is information. But we can't stay there because our design takes us immediately into this secondary response. And we cannot control that with our mind alone, I don't think, very well. No, you can't change your mind with your mind. No. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I, I thought was really powerful, I've done a few study things with Gabor Mate. I know you have done work with him also. But one of the most important things that, he said that I always remember is it's not the trauma that's the issue. It's the story you made up about what happened. That's the, and, and that's such an important distinction to understand. 
Oh, absolutely. You know, um, I had the opportunity to work in the Middle East and uh, in a zone of conflict. And I was sitting with a, an elderly grandfather who was sharing a story with me about a bomb and having lost his wife, his daughter, and three of his grandchildren. And I'm sitting in the presence of this man, you know, who is sharing with me his compassion for the other side, for the instigator of the bomb. And I thought, part of me thought, how could this be authentic? And as I listened to his story, it was the story that he made up about it. His frame, his coherence, his message, his faith gave him the framework to have some tolerance of the experience. And it, it changed me forever. Yeah. That, that, That's that capacity, yeah. Yeah, it's so hard to remember Viktor Frankl, one of the most important mm. things in his amazing book, Man's Search for Freedom, is that between the stimulus and response, there's always a space. And it's in that place that we have the freedom to choose our attitude, regardless of the circle, being in a concentration camp, being in a war zone, being in a fight with your partner. We always have the choice at that point. Mm. And I think part of it is slowing down enough because that space in between the stimulus and response, the more we can meditate and still ourselves, the bigger that space gets. Oh, and that takes practice. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to call that the power of the pause. Mm -hmm. And there's a structure in the brain, Kim in the brain, sorry, <laughs> called the anterior cingulate. And it is the boss of the power of the pause. And uh, there was this great study done by Andrew Newberg and his colleagues where they did sa-ta-na-ma with your fingers. Sa-ta-na-ma, thumb finger touching. Mm -hmm. And you would recite, you know, the chant. Mm -hmm. And he had regular people do this at red lights in their car all day long and measured the density of the anterior cingulate over a period of time. And he found that through conscious meditative space, the density of this structure got bigger with this practice. And what that does is give you greater impulse control. It broadens that space, as you described, between the stimulus and the response. Mm -hmm. And that, that sort of explains what stillness practice and meditative practice and breathing and consciousness and mindfulness does is it takes that, that pause and it punctuates it so that you can have this capacity for being with yourself in the distress. Mm, brilliant. So Kim, we're getting to the end of our time here. I just want to check and see, 
Any last things you'd like to share with us? So much You have so much wisdom and insight. It's hard to, to pick something. So I'll let you look and see what would you like to tell our listeners as a way of wrapping it up? I think what I always like people to glean is the power of hope. That helping is healing and healing is possible. And through hope, there is all kinds of regeneration of I can be in this world and finding that purpose and hope is really a big key core factor in mental health and well-being. And I also want to say thank you to you for having this commitment to this topic and bringing this very important and relevant conversation to your listeners and the world. And I'm humbly honored to have had the opportunity to speak to you today. Oh, Kim, thank you so much. You are so gracious, such an amazing storyteller and just a gift. There's so much more we can talk about, but uh, Kim Barthel, it's just wonderful to be with you. Your book, we didn't even talk about Conversations with a Rattlesnake. We just mentioned briefly your encounter with Theo Fleury. We'll have to do another show sometime to get to the book, but it's just been a delight to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.